right, if you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and as I say that, half the room got nervous and half the room got really excited, so <laughs> Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going to be tonight. Heavenly Father, we are just so overwhelmed by all that you have done over these last uh, two and a bit days. It's, it's felt so, so short, it's felt so, so brief, it's felt like we have just at the same time, just being in your presence forever, Lord God. It's this just incredible contrast of emotions and feelings and, and things that you have spoken and things that you have done. And, and, and Lord God, we, we are just so aware, Lord God, of the significance of this time, the significance of this moment, Lord God, in our nation's history. We, we thank you, Lord God, that, that the most important thing happening on planet earth is the gathering of your, your people in local churches across the world. And we thank you that that is the most significant thing happening in this nation. Lord God, your people, sons and daughters of the Lord Most High, with hearts just uh, yielded and submitted and surrendered to Jesus and full of the Holy Spirit, gathering together in local churches across cities, across towns, across villages. We thank you, Lord God, that, that it is through the local church that you are displaying your, your multifaceted, your manifold wisdom and glory, not just to the nations, but to principalities and to powers. We thank you, Lord, that this is something of cosmic importance, not just of international importance. And so, Lord God, we are just so in awe of, of our smallness and your incredible greatness, Lord God. And, and the privilege that you have, have put your, your hand on us. You have, you have placed your hand upon us. And you have chosen us for a time such as this. Lord God, I, I, I just pray that throughout these, all that we have heard and learned and seen, Lord God, would you, would you uh, as we end tonight... Lord God, would you, would you bring to the surface, spark again, some of those key moments from the last two days, so that as we walk out of these doors, as we climb on airplanes and into cars and go home, Lord God, may there not be a period at the end of tonight. Lord God, may it just be a comma, and, so, and, and the story is still to be continued, Lord God. We thank you, and Holy Spirit, we, we thank you. We don't have to welcome you. We thank you that you are here already, Lord, Lord God, and, and we just ask that you would move just so specifically and so uniquely, so powerfully in, uh, among us uh, this evening, touching hearts, breathing life, releasing gifting and anointing and grace, and most of all, lifting our heads and our eyes to King Jesus. Jesus, we, 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 we honor you, we glorify you, we praise you, be honored in all that we do from this moment forward. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. My heart tonight, my desire tonight, my hope, my prayer tonight is, is to honor God, obviously, but I trust as this is the final uh, session of what has been just a phenomenal few days together, I hope to be, to be honoring the things that God has been saying and doing. Um, because as has already been said tonight, what is most important is not just the things we've heard and the things we've seen, as amazing as that is, but it's what are we going to do with it. And Isaiah chapter 6 has come up a lot this, this, in the last few days. 
And it's been on my heart for this week, the three very significant moments in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord, Isaiah heard the Lord, and then Isaiah was commissioned and sent by the Lord. And, and, and I want that to be on the forefront of our hearts and minds as we navigate our way through Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And, and this is a text that I, I believe God wants to use tonight. I, I've just been listening so, so carefully to the things that God has been saying. And it's, it's been remarkable, uh, uh, this, well, maybe not so remarkable because God's, at it, God's doing it, but just this wonderful sense of, of diversity of gifting but unity of heart. And this, this, this intentionality to, to lean into and to, and to surrender at the same time to our Lord and King Jesus. And so I just want to ask you, be listening out. We don't have time to dive into much, but be listening out for, for threads and themes that have come up this week. And, and I believe that's going to be the Spirit of God just reminding you of things that you need to, to, to make note of as you go from this place and then tomorrow morning and the, the weeks and months from now, as leadership teams get together, as families get together, as folks spend time in the presence of the Lord, the key question you need to be asking is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to respond? Um, it was in May 2004 that Debs and I and our two girls arrived on these, uh, in, this, in this amazing nation. And we, we, we came on what is known as a religious worker visa. At the time, it was a visa that allowed us to stay for three years. And then after three years, we had to have it renewed. And as I was the primary visa holder, it was my visa that was the one that needed to be renewed. And we were working with an immigration attorney at the time. And his strategy, his, his sense was the best way forward was for me to leave the country. We, we chose Canada. We flew to Canada. Uh, uh, went to the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa to be interviewed in the hope of the visa being renewed. Uh, but he said to me that there was this uh, possibility that if the visa was denied, I would have no way of getting back into the country. And so my family would be left back in the States and we'd have to figure things out. But obviously, full of faith and, and absolutely convinced of the plan and purpose of God that God had called us, where I flew out on a, on a Sunday night and arrived in Ottawa on a Monday morning and met the immigration attorney. And together we went off to the U.S. Embassy and the interview went fine. The problem was they don't tell you whether the visa had been approved. You go away and you have a sleepless night on the Monday night and you are told to return at 12 o'clock at the security gate at the U.S. Embassy, at which point you will be issued your passport and then you flick through the pages to figure out whether you got the visa or not. Um, just a, a really high, kind of heart-wrenching process. But I got there as quickly as I could. I was third in line. Uh, there were two people before me. Uh, 12 o'clock arrived. The security guard walked out with this collection of passports. Person one gave his name, issued the passport. There was a smile on his face. He obviously got the visa. Uh, person two had the same reaction. It was my turn. I said to the security guard, my name is Sudworth, Steve Sudworth. He looked through the, the, the collection of passports. He paused for a moment. Uh, he put that collection of passports down. He went into his office, came out with another collection of passports and couldn't find my passport there either. So he said to me, just take a moment, uh, just wait here, and he was on the phone uh, to someone inside. Yes, yes, 
Okay, I'll send him right in. He puts the phone down. Mr. Sudworth, there's a problem. They want to see you inside. And my heart just sank. And so I was led into what was then at the time an empty U.S. embassy, led into a room with no windows, uh, told to wait until someone would come to me. And for 45 minutes to an hour, I faced the very real possibility that my life would not be lived in the U.S., And as clear and as certain and as absolutely sure of the promises of God that we were, we were sure that God had spoken. We were certain that God uh, had called us, so much so that we sold up everything to come here in 2004. For that moment, for those 45 minutes, I have to be honest, my heart sank. I lost faith, and I just began to weep. I began to weep at at the thoughts of God's promises not coming to pass. Perhaps you've been in a similar situation. Perhaps you've come here this week looking back over the last few years and what seemed so clear and what seemed so certain and what seemed so, so, so obvious for so many years over the last few might have gotten murky, might have gotten unclear, might be unsure. You've, you've come wondering whether the promises of God are actually as sure and as certain as you once thought they were. And maybe your response was to weep as well. Today, what we're going to do is look at a passage in Scripture in Revelation 4 and 5, where John had a very similar reaction, and he wept too. Now, if you want... Well... I'm standing here today, 15 years later, so everything, I mean, I thought that was obvious. Uh, <laughs> they misplaced my passport. They just, they just lost my passport. I love the fact that I built up so much tension in the room that you had to ask me the question. Mission accomplished. If you... If you attended James's breakout session on preaching, I'm sure he shared about the importance of building tension. But in Revelation chapter 1, in the first four verses, we focus so much on the rest of the book of Revelation. But honestly, in Revelation chapter 1, first four verses, I think are some of the most critical verses in understanding the book of Revelation. Because it describes exactly what the book of Revelation is. And it tells us that it's a prophecy. It tells us that it is a letter. It tells us that it is most importantly, most importantly, not just a testimony or a prophecy or a letter, but it is a revelation. And depending on your translation, some translations say it is a revelation from Jesus, which is absolutely true because it is Jesus giving the revelation of what is happening. But also, most importantly, some translations say it is a revelation of Jesus. It's a, that is the primary purpose of the book of Revelation, to open our eyes to the truth of, of who Jesus is. We make the mistake of thinking the book is about beasts and barcodes, or harlots and, or horsemen, or, or trumpets, or some timeline of the, of the end of the world. But, but friends, we need to focus on one fact and one fact alone, that the book of Revelation is about Jesus, who is seated on the throne and will reign for all eternity. Jesus is Lord, and His will will prevail. Now we're going to jump in at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 4, and John writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. 
And Marcus helped us understand uh, yesterday that, that what happened just before in Revelation chapter 3 was the Laodiceans were rebuked by Jesus, but also given this incredible invitation to come through a door that he was knocking and invited into a place of incredible worship and fellowship. And the only thing separating Jesus from these lazy Laodiceans was a closed door that he was knocking on consistently and patiently, trusting and hoping and desiring that they would respond. I stand at the door and knock. And I don't want to build a theology around this, but the question has to be asked, did they respond? And I suspect they did, because the very next verse, which is verse 1 of chapter 4, tells us that after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And so I put it to you, the Laodiceans responded to the knocking of the Lord on their hearts. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you going to respond to the knocking of the, of, the, of the Lord on the door of your heart this week? What has the Lord been saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? And the voice I, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so John sees this open door uh, into heaven. He sees this open door into God's throne room and he hears Jesus saying, come up, come up here. I want to show you the throne room of God. And friends, I want to put it to you that this is an absolutely stunning picture of what corporate worship looks like. Whether that happens on a Sunday or at a prayer gathering or what we've enjoyed this entire week. We, we, we often come to Sunday gatherings or times like this and we say, we, we say something like, Lord, may, may, may heaven come down to me. But friends, as I, I can't remember who said it, uh, um, worship is not about me. Worship is not about us. Worship is about Jesus not just first and foremost, but always. Worship is always about Him, and in God's goodness, He pours out words and grace and anointings and giftings and so on and so forth. But it is always first and foremost about Jesus. We don't, we don't come on a Sunday, Lord, may your presence come down. God's presence is here when the gathering of believers happens. Friends, on a Sunday, what, what, what should take place is, is the worship team with the elders and with some of you bringing uh, uh, scriptures or songs or prophetic words, causing us together to look up and peer through the open door of heaven and begin to see the glory of God in the throne room. And that's exactly what is happening here. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And then John begins to describe this incredible scene that he begins to see. And this, this is picture language. It, it sometimes kind of doesn't really make logical sense, but that's not the point. He, he's painting this amazing picture of what he sees. He speaks about an emerald rainbow and the thunder and lightning of the glory of God and, and 24 elders robed in, in, in white robes, crowned with crowns. And we're not going to dive into what that means. I, I would put it to you that it speaks of the, re, the fullness of the redeemed people of God. The, the, all the old covenant redeemed people and new covenant redeemed people of God uh, uh, with crowns on their heads, sitting on their own thrones and, and around them four living creatures one with the face of a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man representing all living creatures circling the throne. 
And friends, the remarkable thing that John tells us is whenever the living creatures worship, which is always, these elders, the redeemed people of God, fall at the feet of Jesus and remove their crowns. Friends, sometimes we fall at the feet of Jesus because the anointing of God has hit us. But sometimes we need to choose to fall at the feet of of Jesus because he alone is worthy. But then in verse 6, I want you to look at verse 6. I I, I was intrigued by this, and and I feel like this might speak to some of us here tonight. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We've just uh, finished a series at our church uh, teaching through the gospel of Mark, and there was a time where we learned together from Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6 about storms, what it feels like and what Jesus does when we are in the middle of the lake, in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the boat, in the middle of a storm. I'm sure we all know what that feels like, and what we learned was that Jesus alone has the authority to either calm every storm or walk on the wave or the waves of every storm you and I face. Sometimes he calms the storm and sometimes he walks on the waves of the storm and brings us through it. It's not for me to say what he wants to do. He does one of the two things, but in both instances, he always reveals something of himself. In Mark chapter 6, there's this very interesting verse. The scene is that the disciples are on the, in the boats in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is up on the mountain praying. And it says, shortly before dawn, I love that, the light is beginning to break from the darkness of night. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. It's an interesting choice of words. He, he went out to them, he was about to pass them by. But if you study that verse, you, you, you begin to discover that Mark intentionally chose that phrase, about to pass them by, because it was exactly the same phrase that is used in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, when God passes by Moses and reveals his glory to him. Moses cries out to God. He says, God, show me your glory. And we know what God does. He puts him in the cleft of a rock, and he says, my goodness will pass you by. And then he begins to proclaim his name, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, and so on. The point being, when God passes us by, he reveals his very very self. And so friends, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, when the disciples feel all alone, Jesus doesn't pass them by as in, I just want to, I'm off somewhere else, I need to, no, he's revealing himself. He could have pulled them up on top of the mountain. In fact, he does that in in Mark chapter 9. But there's something about a storm. There's something specific about a crisis moment that God uses to reveal something about himself that ordinary circumstances wouldn't. And so I want to say to you, if you are here this evening, if you've been here this week and you are in the midst of a storm, can I encourage you, open your eyes because Jesus is revealing himself to you. And that's why the sea at Jesus' feet is always as smooth as glass. So we're gonna jump forward to, Matthew, uh, to Revelation chapter five, verse one, just for the sake of time. Then I saw, John says, then I saw in the right hand 
of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So, so John notices that there is one who is seated on the throne, God the Father, as I said, and he's, he's holding a scroll with writing on the front and back, meaning it is, it's, it's a very comprehensive uh, 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 scroll. It's, there's a lot of information on it, but it's sealed with seven seals. Now, if, you were to, if we were to study a little further in the book of Revelation beyond chapter 5, we, we would discover that on the scroll is God's detailed plans and purposes for the world and for the rule and reign of His kingdom to come. Plans for judgment. Plans for judgment and the eradication of evil and injustice. God's plans to overthrow Satan and in doing so to defeat death and sickness and sin, but also God's plan for blessing and God's plan for redemption, to reward those who were faithful and to renew all things. But friends, the scroll is sealed. It's sealed with seven seals, meaning it's comprehensively sealed. It's sealed only for one person to open. In verse 2 of Revelation 5, this mighty powerful angel in a voice like thunder asks the question, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? This angel doesn't pull his little kind of angel friend aside and, do you know anyone who might be worthy? No, he stands before thousands upon thousands of angels. He stands before all of creation and all of the people of God, and he booms out this question, is there anyone worthy to execute on the purposes of God? And he's met with deafening silence. But no one, no one in heaven, no one here, no one on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. The question is asked, who, who is worthy to initiate and execute on the plan and purposes of God? To bring about the, the, the reality of the experience of God's kingdom, the reign and rule of God's kingdom. To bring the, 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 the entire world's history into completion. And, and all of creation holds its collective breath. There's no one who is found worthy. And friends, with a horror far worse than the one I experienced for those 45 minutes in that room in Ottawa, and a horror far worse than anything you have experienced, for a moment, John faced the reality of a world without Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I wept, and I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls or to look inside. Friends, if those, if those seven seals are not opened, the scroll can't be unraveled, and then God's plan and purpose for judgment and for redemption can't be executed, and then weeping is the only appropriate, is the only appropriate response. We live, and John lived, with the conviction that God has committed himself to bring about the redemption of the earth and all things, to bring about judgment and to bring about redemption of everything. Otherwise, the universe is pointless, friends. Yeah. 
Otherwise, our lives are hopeless. Otherwise, every atrocity committed in history, every atrocity committed to you or to me will have the final say. No wonder John weeps. But then look at verse five. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. In other words, I I know something, John. I know something that you don't. Do not weep. See, look, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. There will be redemption because the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has overcome. I want to take a moment to just talk through those two Old Testament references. And I want to do so by using this game, Guess Who? I think most parents probably know what the game is all about. You get 24 cards and you choose one, and then through a process of asking questions and through a series of elimination, is your, is your person, you know, a man or a woman? Do they wear glasses? Do they have brown hair? What, whatever. Slowly, one by one, each person is eliminated until one person is revealed. And, and in some way, God is playing this, 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 this kind of divine, infinite game of guess who as he patiently and persistently and specifically reveals who the Messiah is, who is worthy to open the scrolls. It starts in Genesis 3 when, when God reveals a coming Messiah who is, who is born of Eve, who, who is a seed of Eve, and through suffering and through his own pain will destroy Satan. And so a couple of cards are turned down and it becomes clearer who the Messiah is. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we, we hear that this, this seed of Eve, this, this, this Messiah that has been prophesied about, actually comes from the lineage of Abraham. More specifically, it comes not just from Abraham, but from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Interestingly, Isaac and Jacob are younger sons, and more is revealed about the coming Messiah. And then we read in Genesis, the very end of Genesis, when... Um, Jacob begins to prophesy over his sons. And rather interestingly, he doesn't prophesy this over his favorite son, Joseph, but over Judah, he says, there is a lion-like figure that will come one day to redeem the world. Then millennia pass before we get to understand this seed of David, this root of David, what, what, what that is all about. Isaiah chapter 11 speaks of that. Speaks of that. It tells us that the, that, that, some, that, that, that the root of Jesse, that's David's father, the root of, uh, of Jesse, will, through, through him will come this Messiah who, who, will, who will be able to bring about such a, a wholeness and peace and redemption to the world. And then eventually, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus finally reveals who the Messiah is. And he says in Matthew chapter one, verse one, this is the genealogy of Jesus. I think it was Steve Barr who said this morning, there is power even in the genealogies. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. In other words, the root of David. 
and the son of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so, friends, Revelation 5, verse 5 is actually the cry of delight because behold, look, there is one, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has triumphed. And, and, and so John is, I, I want you to picture John sitting on the edge of his seat, desperate to get a, a vision of this triumphant, roaring lion who has come to destroy everything and bring about peace. And he turns. And in verse six, it tells us, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the, and the elders. Friends, this is what is most glorious and shocking about the gospel. Death is defeated and the world is redeemed. But what is most shocking is that it comes through a lamb who has been slain. The, the, the message of the gospel is that there is victory and redemption. But victory and redemption through death and through suffering and through humility, Jesus overcame. Jesus triumphed and was raised the, the all-conquering, victorious king, but he did so through death. And friends, the good news of the gospel is this. That's the cross we are called to pick up. That's the pearl of great price that we are called to give up everything for. You wanna discover life? You want to discover supernatural resurrection life. Here's the key. You need to die. You need to lay yourself down. You need to give up everything before the throne of the one who is worthy. And friends, this is what, this is what the disciples so struggled with. We, we heard a number of times uh, from Matthew 16, when, when Jesus is revealing himself and, and, makes, and, and, and Peter has a revelation of who Jesus is. But, but Mark's gospel has a very interesting take. Jesus asks the disciples in Mark 8, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And, and Peter answered, as we know, you are the Messiah. But, but we know he's not the king the disciples thought he was going to be. And then in verse 31, it says, And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And the disciples had heard Jesus reference himself as the Son of Man. It was one of his most favorite terms to describe himself. The Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 where there is this triumphant kind of a king who, who comes before the Father, the Son of Man, and, and receives kind of a crown and a kingdom. And the disciples were, yes, we want to serve. We want to follow the Son of Man. But this is the first time that the Son of Man is linked with the Son of Suffering. The Son of Suffering that is described in Isaiah chapter 53, who is despised, who's rejected, who's familiar with pain, 
who's pierced for our sins and crushed for our iniquities and who's oppressed and afflicted. And it's no wonder in, in, in Mark chapter 8 that, that although Jesus spoke plainly about this, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And the question has to be asked, what, what happened with Peter where, where one moment he was able to so clearly de, uh, declare Jesus rightly so as the Messiah and a few moments later get it completely wrong? And I want to suggest three things that I think are very applicable to us in the day and age in which we live. Three things, that I, three things that I think Peter got wrong. Peter misunderstood the moment. Firstly, it was because of Peter's worldview. It was the lens through which he sees everything. And the lens through which Peter saw the Messiah was that this Messiah was going to be this all-conquering, triumphant king. Secondly, I think there was Peter's own desire mixed up in this view of Jesus. You see, he was Jesus' right-hand man, and he knew that if Jesus overthrew Rome and came in triumphantly, he would be sitting at his right hand. Do you remember the disciples actually argued about that a few chapters later? And then thirdly, I think, quite simply, Peter just misread or misunderstood the Scriptures. And I want to say, friends, this is not, a, this is not an accusation, and this is not meant to in any way, you know, it's meant to challenge us. I'm going to stop apologizing. This is meant to challenge us, what I'm about to say. Because, friends, I think we are not immune from making those mistakes. We're not immune from seeing Jesus through our own worldview, through our own cultural lens, seeing Jesus in the context of a Western, and in the case of most people here, an American perspective. And that's often how we find ourselves looking at Jesus. Secondly, I want to say we have our own personal interests involved. We want to see Jesus the way we want to see Jesus because that's the way we want to receive from Jesus things that we are trusting for. That's how Jesus becomes nothing more than a life or relationship coach or a financial advisor or a therapist or one who rescues us, or one who heals us. And yes, Jesus does rescue us, and Jesus does heal us, and Jesus does give us relationship perspective, and uh, not perspective, gives us relationship input. But friends, he is far bigger than that. Jesus is Lord of all, who deserves our lives to be laid down. And thirdly, I want to say, none of us here, myself included, read Scripture absolutely perfectly. We all have our bias that we've got to be aware of. And, and I honestly think, in my humble opinion, this is the biggest challenge facing America today. Followers of Jesus Christ forming and shaping a view of Jesus that fits their image rather than realizing we are created in His. And the way we know it, friends, is because Jesus starts to look a little like us. He starts to have our theological convictions he starts to, we start to think that he would probably vote for the political party where we would vote for. He, has, he carries our social concerns. And he probably would support the football team that we would support if he was a football fan. James, Florida, he wouldn't support Florida, unfortunately. Three things, three things that we can do. Three things that we can do. Firstly, 
we need to recognize our blindness. We need to recognize our blindness, friends, and this takes humility. It, 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 it requires, it requires a, 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 a facing the facts that we are not all-knowing. Only God is. Paul writes, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 13, we see in part. Therefore, we know in part. We don't know all things. So firstly, friends, we need to recognize our blindness. Secondly, we need to read the Scriptures and the Gospels, and especially what I would say, the Gospels. We need to read this book. And when we come across those, those difficult texts, that's not the time to back away. That's the time to lean into that discomfort and to pray, Jesus, reveal yourself to me through the Word of God. And then thirdly, I would say, we need to rely on each other. That's why there is such beauty and power in the local church and in local churches partnering together. Friends, as much as I'm saying this for individuals, I'm saying this for churches too. We need one another. We, we have biases. We have uh, different perspectives. And together, we get to see Jesus more fully and more holy. All right, we're nearly finished. Let's get back to Revelation chapter 5. We're nearly done. Probably another five to eight minutes. Probably another 10 minutes, but we're nearly done. <laughs> and so John begins to describe this incredible scene that becomes clear to, to all that the lamb is the triumphant lion. And it's, I think Revelation 5 is the scene of the ascension of Jesus seen from heaven's perspective. And so let's quickly read. Verse 7, he went, Jesus, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne just as we, as we read this, can I just ask, just to allow your imagination to, to picture what we're about to read. The one, the one alone who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand, to break the seals, and to begin to execute on the promises of God. Watching all of this are the four creatures and the 24 elders. And as he, as he takes the, the, the scroll, they, they all fall down before the lamb. And it tells us that each of them are holding a harp. Now, I, I want to say, if there are any harp players, harpists, I, I don't want to offend. But, I, but personally, I find a harp just a little bit kind of melancholic. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I haven't heard many happy songs played on a harp. It's kind of like a pan flute. You know, pan flutes, I'm not a pan flute. The, but... In Middle Eastern, in Middle Eastern biblical times, this is, this, you need to hear this. The harp is actually closer to a banjo. And have you ever heard a melancholic song played on a banjo? <laughs> Never. That's the point. This is not a moment of sadness and melancholy. This is a moment of joy and jubilation and celebration because there is one who has been found who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father and to begin to break the seals. And in verse 9, it tells us they sang a new song. And friends, they're not just singing a song to the one who was on the throne. They begin to sing to the one who was worthy to take the scroll. And in my estimation, I might be wrong, but I think this is the first time that a worship song is sung to Jesus. And this is what they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. 
And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. Joel read this. Numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands Time ten thousands. Just, Joel, I would say it's even more than the number. I would say it's gazillions. Or what is ever even greater than gazillions. Just as far as the eye can see. There's the throne. And around the throne are living creatures. And around the living creatures are the elders. And around the elders... Are these, these angels as far as the eye can see? And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, the Father, And to the Lamb, the Son, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the redeemed, the the elders, the redeemed people of God fell down and worshiped. Friends, John wept at the thought of a world without one worthy to usher in the plan and purpose of God. He, he wept at the thought of a world without Jesus Christ. But now he, he ends worshiping along with every creature in heaven and on earth because there is one and one alone who is worthy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the lamb that was slain. And as we end today, we're gonna just go back into a song in a few moments. I just wanna leave, with all of that in mind, I wanna leave one verse with you. And it's from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It's such a simple verse, but it is a verse I have done my utmost to live my life upon. And I want to share it with you because I believe it's, it carries something of God's heart for us as we go. And Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. That's my exhortation to you as Paul exhorted Timothy I want to encourage us all, friends, as we leave this place, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Through every victory and through every heartache, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, he says to Timothy, raised from the dead. Raised from the dead. Tyron spoke of the kingdom being an upside down kingdom. In the world, death follows life. In the kingdom, life follows death. If you and I wanna live with the supernatural resurrection life that we want to live with, that we desire to experience, friends, it requires a death. It requires a laying down of everything, of all of our plans and all of our dreams and all of the things we think we can do for God. Friends, what is a dollar? Why do we hold on? And I say, my, I say this to myself as much as to each of you. We hold on to things. We can't take dollars with us. We can't take anything with us, friends. 
We lay it down. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul writes, raised from the dead, descended from David. God gave a promise that there would be one day a Messiah seated on the throne of David. But for generation after generation, there was evil king after evil king after evil king. But friends, you need to hear this. God is faithful. God is faithful. His promises will come to pass. And as you are seated here tonight, about to leave from this place, knowing that God has spoken to you, friends, I want to encourage you. God is faithful. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And then he says this, this is my gospel. Let that be our gospel as we go out. Let that be our gospel as we go into the world. Let us tell the world of Jesus Christ who defeated death, who defeated sin, who defeated Satan, who calls people back into relationship with the Father simply through faith in Him and through repentance by grace. Friends, we get to preach that. A God who is faithful, whose promises will come to pass.